Well, let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. Um, it's a pleasure to be with you and uh, to open the Word of God with you. This is the high point of my uh, week to study God's Word with you. And one of the reasons for that is that the Bible is comforting. It's like our comfort food. I, I feel like life is, you know, hard and it's a roller coaster, it's ups and downs, and there's moments in the week that are great, but this is a moment to reestablish why you believe what you believe, who you believe in, who you're resting in, where all your trust is, where all your hope is. It's time to get re-anchored, right? Throw the anchor over and just stop for a while and sit and feast on the Word of God. And I use that word comfort food because it is, is comforting to hear the Word of God. But and during the holiday season, I have to say this, uh, you know, a couple of my kids were in the kitchen and they were preparing some comfort food that I'm going to eat after lunch today. And it's a, a nice cake that's just waiting for all of us to eat of. And that won't help me physically at all um, externally, but in my heart, I'll be comforted, right? And there's sort of the give and take with uh, holiday eating. But I want to, I want us to feed on the word of God and be comforted, but also realize that this comfort comes by way of a warning. It's comfort by way of a warning. And it's, it's a hard word, but it's comforting. And the, the word from this morning is, don't be Judas Iscariot. That's the point. That's the point of the message. Don't be Judas. Judas. Don't end up like he ended up. And don't take the path that he took to get there. Don't be Judas Iscariot. He is the ultimate story of who you do not want to be, whom you don't want to be like, and you don't want to end up like. And we all have the real potential in our lifetime to harden up. As a believer, you'll never lose your faith. But as an unbeliever, you might think that you're in the faith and then fall from what you thought that you had. And that's what Judas did. Judas is the ultimate example of who not to be like. Who do we want to be like? We want to be like the 11. Be like the 11, don't be like the 12. (laughs) That's the point. Now, what do I mean by that? These 11 men that were appointed to apostleship were not perfect, and they weren't put into a state of perfection by being apostles. They were if you will, if we could sort of modernize ancient times, they put one, one leg in one pant leg at a time when they put their pants on. Really, they wore robes. But they were red-blooded men who were exposed in Scripture as having highs and lows, victories and failures. We learned about them last week, and you can learn about them if you tune in to last week's sermon, but just by way of review, it was the 12 apostles. In verse 1, they're called the 12 disciples. They were given authority over unclean spirits um, to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. They were the called. The beginning of verse 1 says Jesus called to him his 12 disciples. They had been called to faith. 
Generally, the, everyone, whoever comes under the hearing of the gospel is called to faith. The whole world is to believe, but those who come to faith are those who are summoned, and that is the unique, irresistible call of the heart. And these disciples had been called to Jesus, and now they were being called in terms of an appointment. They were appointed to apostleship, given amazing power to carry on Jesus' ministry. Jesus came to bring the kingdom. He gave the kingdom message saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. Believe on me. John the Baptist, as the forerunner, said, this is the Lamb of God. This is the Messiah. And Jesus came and vindicated who John said he was and did miracles and cast out demons, raised the dead, healed the sick, gave sight to the blind. He made the deaf able to hear, the mute able to speak. He did all these incredible things that no prophet had ever done in a packaged way. It was amazing. But now he was extending his ministry, and this is the the roll call of the 12 apostles. Matthew 10, as I said last week, is like a war manual, a six-sectioned war manual that's giving the battle plan and the strategy for victory of kingdom advancement. How do we win the war in a world given over to the curse and fall and sin and Satan? Well, you follow this battle plan and you watch the victory come at the end. And we know that Jesus wins in the end. And we know that we're part of this victory and we're part of this march. And we're not the apostles, but we're the disciples that are following in the wake of what they did. We want to learn from what they were called to. But we don't want to romanticize the apostles and put them uh, like like gods on the Parthenon at a level that we don't relate to them. We don't want to become so intimidated by them that we become intimidated to participate in the mission. And we say, we could never be like them. We could never do what they did. Well, let me ask this question. Don't you have the same Holy Spirit? Yes, you do. You have the power of God in your life. Once you were quickened, you were able to understand the truth and understand the gospel. And you were set free from your sins. You were forgiven, given a clean slate. And you you have light in your eyes. And you see Jesus by faith. And you know he's right here with you. And you know that he's pleading your case before the throne of God. And you are right with the Lord and empowered by the Holy Spirit and gifted to do the work of the ministry. So you're right in line with this, with these apostles who were... Not perfect men, but they were called men. They were those whom uh, Barclay said Jesus chose these men not only for what they were, but also for what they were capable of becoming under his influence and in his power. Wherever you are right now is not where you need to ultimately be. Jesus is pulling you from here to there by his spirit in this mission and in this work. If you'll only open yourself and be available to him. That's the call of this passage. Be like these 11. Don't be like the 12th. Because you could give it all away. You could give away the power of this moment, the power of the mission, the power of what God has next for your life by just letting go and going off mission and being led astray down the path of perdition. Who are the 11? The ones that we want to be like just by way of review. Simon with a foot-shaped mouth who always spoke first before he thought, but yet was a bold representative and spokesperson on behalf of the apostles, a follower of the Lord Jesus. His brother, Andrew, they were blood brothers, but they were brothers in the Lord, followers of Christ, fishermen who left their nets and followed Jesus. James, the son of Zebedee, who also was brother to Matthew, we learned last week, 
Uh, Matthew, the tax collector. Matthew, who's also named Levi. He's the son of Alphaeus also. They both had the same... Um, the, I'm sorry, they both, I, I think I got that mixed up actually, but I'll fix that in a minute. All that to say, stay with me. James is the son of Zebedee. He is brother to John, and John is the beloved disciple. James, the son of Zebedee, was the first apostle who was martyred for the faith. He, um, Acts chapter 12 says, you have Philip who led, verse 3, Bartholomew to Christ. Bartholomew, who is Nathaniel in the gospel of John and they um they were brothers in the Lord friends before they were saved and then you have Thomas and we look at Thomas and look down on him and say he was a doubter but Thomas also was one who said I'm going to follow Christ to the death and he gave that amazing statement when he put his hands in the side and palms of Jesus saying my Lord and my God then you have Matthew the tax collector And you have James, the son of Alphaeus. Now I'll correct it. This is the right James. Matthew and James are actually brothers because Matthew's name is Levi. You'll remember this now because I messed it up. And he is, uh, his father is Alphaeus. And so is James, who is the son of Alphaeus. James is also called James the Less. So he's probably the little brother to Matthew. But it's amazing to see blood brothers, but also spiritual brothers in the Lord, and you have Thaddeus, who is um, known as a, a, the youngest in his family, and, and Simon the Zealot. And you look at Simon the Zealot, Simon the Zealot was the one who was a patriot, who was actually someone who was kind of a behind-the-scenes zealot who would, who would kill um, Roman leaders and dignitaries, and he would have killed Matthew, the tax collector, but they were in the Lord, and, and so now they loved each other and became brothers. All of these 11... And I, I messed up that earlier on purpose just to show you that we're all just imperfect. No, I'm kidding. Um, but it is the spirit of this sermon. We're just like these 11. We are just normal people, men and women, in the fight, together, families, um, as many of you are related, but we're all related in the Lord together on this mission. And we need to um, follow what Jesus wants us to do and follow Jesus and not follow Judas. Do you see, we have a real decision to make in life. What will you do with the rest of your life? Follow Jesus. Don't follow Judas. Don't be Judas Iscariot. If If you learn one thing from this message, it's being called not to be Judas Iscariot. Don't be like him. I want to pick up with... uh, This last figure, because I didn't finish the sermon from last week, and so I'm literally picking up with my notes from last week where I stopped off, but I did fill in a bunch of gaps this week about Judas Iscariot. We need to learn who we don't want to be like. This is the warning of warnings in Scripture. Judas Iscariot, he was of his father Simon Iscariot, John 6, 71, and John 13, 26, talk about him having a dad and knowing where he came from. He's the man of Kerioth, uh, two eligible villages kind of um, mark what, where his name might have come from. But in the Latin version of Iscariot, which is Skirios, means zealot movement. Not sure if he was part of the zealot movement or not. In Aramaic, uh, the word Iscariot is, became a synonym for falsehood or betrayer. It can also mean redhead. It can also point to him having a trade in in dyeing clothes like uh, Judas the dyer. But I don't necessarily know 
whether the Bible's telling us what hair color he had or what his trade was. We just know that Iscariot became a real synonym for a betrayer. Judas is a traitor. Judas is a person who was trusted, who was duplicitous. Judas is a liar. Judas is a thief. And Judas ultimately was the picture of self-deception. He was by trade the treasurer with the apostles. So he managed money well. That's why he was selected to do it. He had a reputation of being trusted or trustworthy. A man of probably his own great wealth, but he had the job as the CPA to be the accountant and counting the money and making sure the Lord's money was distributed well in terms of the ministry and the mission. But he was anything but honest. He was actually the opposite. John twelve six and thirteen twenty nine talk about this. If you go back to John 12, verse 4, it says, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples... He who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, the scene here is when Mary took the alabaster of oil and anointed the Lord Jesus's head with this ointment because she knew that she was in the presence of the Messiah. The one who was Messiah literally means the anointed one, the one who is the anointed king of kings and Lord of lords, and she's basking in his presence. And all Judas could think of was, why would you waste all this money? Why did he say that? Verse 6 of John 12. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself. Look at that language. He used to help himself to what was put into it. He used to pad his pockets with the Lord's money. He would steal from God directly. Now, this week, I had a phone call with a pastor from... LA, the Burbank area, at a pretty well-known church in my circles. He's a graduate from Master Seminary and has been at this church for seven or eight years. And uh, he was calling me because he's leaving that church. He's resigned from that ministry. And what happened is the accountant there, um, who he thought something was up, um, it turned out that he was embezzling money over the years up to a million dollars is what he stole from this church. And this man ultimately ended his own life because of his own guilt. He couldn't live with himself. And um, sadly, he didn't repent of his sin. And the elders who trusted that administrator and didn't trust the senior pastor sided still with the administrator for some bizarre reason. And so there was a split. And so he left. But this is the sin of the love of money that sparks all kinds of evil and hurt and pain. And that's what Judas fell to. So here's the big question. How could Jesus make Judas Iscariot into one of the apostles? Didn't Jesus know better? I mean, there were only 12 slots he had to fill. And he got 11 right and one wrong. Is that what happened with the Lord Jesus? I don't think so. I don't think so. Judas has a purpose. If for no other reason, Judas gives us the example of what not to be, what not to follow, who not to be like. Be like the 11, don't be like the 12th. Here's some questions. Did Judas have the same powers that everyone else had as the apostles? The answer is yes. He was given the same powers. Look at verse 1 of chapter 10. He called to him his 12 disciples, these are the 12 apostles, and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Judas was part of this appointment. 
He could do it. He's the ultimate warning of someone who thinks they're a believer, who thinks they're safe, who thinks they're secure, they're, because they're vindicating their safety by what they're doing. Just because you see the power of God around you doesn't mean that you know God. That's the point of Judas Iscariot. He's the ultimate example of Hebrews 6 of people who taste the heavenly gift, who experience the power of God at church, who see lives changed around them, answered prayers, and then they start to fall away and digress. And they used to say they believed the Lord Jesus Christ. They believed the gospel, but then they begin to spurn it and they begin to harden up and fall away. That's Judas Iscariot. The ultimate example of someone who had power like everyone else. Did he sit at the feet of Jesus like everyone else? Yes, he learned all the teachings of Christ. Did he play? Here's the, here's the question. Did Judas play a role in terms of God's will and purposes working out just like everyone else did? Yes. Just like the 11, Judas played a role as well and was the one who ultimately betrayed Jesus And that's why Jesus went to the cross to die for our sins. In John 17, we get some clues about how this could all happen. Look at John 17, verse 12. Jesus is praying um, about his selection of the apostles. This is his high priestly prayer before he died on the cross. He said, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. You see a couple things here. Number one, he's keeping the 11. He's keeping them in God's name. And he's saying these are the ones that have been given to me. He's guarding them. But then he's designating one of them who's the 12th who's been lost, the son of destruction. Why? So that the scripture might be fulfilled. You see this over and over again, that the scriptures uh, predicted that Judas Iscariot would be appointed and he would be lost. This is all to fulfill prophecy. Mark 14, 26 gives the big sovereign picture of what happened to Judas Iscariot. It says, for the son of God, the son of man goes as it is written of him, as it is grafe, it's written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. It's a pronouncement of a curse on Judas Iscariot. Now, does that mean Judas had no choice in the matter and he was just born and this was going to happen? Well, in one sense, yes, because God is in control of all these things and he planned it this way because the the Old Testament scripture predicted that Judas would betray the Messiah. But at the same time, it's important to understand that Judas is morally responsible for what he did. He sinned against Jesus. And Matthew 26 picks up the story about where he was making morally sinful choices against the Lord. He's negotiating with the um, with the high priest, the chief priest, to sell Jesus out. Matthew 26, verse 14 says, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, Judas is digressing. He's appointed to be an apostle. He's given power. 
He's already one of the disciples, but he's not a true believer. He's given power to do all these things. He's sitting under Jesus' teaching. And, and yet he's bilking the system. He's padding his pocket. He's stealing from the till, right? He's on the take with the Lord's money. He's hypocritical. He's lying about it. He's accusing Mary publicly of wasting money, money that he wants. So he's already in the digressive stage, taking steps away. But then he comes up with the idea, I'm going to go to the chief priests and I'm going to ask, I'm going to negotiate, how much money can I get for betraying Jesus? That's what he starts to do and starts to negotiate 30 pieces of silver. And at that point, he's saying, at any point, I'm going to give Jesus over. I'm going to look for the exact moment to play my hand and have Jesus delivered. Matthew 26, verse 20. It brings us right into the upper room on the eve of the crucifixion. It says, when it was evening, he reclined at table with the 12. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, this is Jesus, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. I want you to look at that for a second because this text takes us into the hearts of the disciples into the heart of Jesus and into the heart of Judas Iscariot. We get to see things a little bit through spiritual or scriptural x-ray vision here. Because the disciples, I mean, they're chosen by the Lord. They're, they're kept by God. And, and yet, as believers, they're sitting there when, when Jesus says at Passover, one of you is going to betray me. And they're going, is it I, Lord? They're examining themselves. They're looking inside. This is a healthy thing for them to be doing. A lot of times I think we trust in the fact that we believed, our parents told us to believe, and we're Christians, and we've never not been Christians, and so we're fine. But when it comes down to these moments, we need to, when the Lord is prompting you to say, are you at a crossroads in making a bad decision, going into a bad direction, you need to say, am I truly a real believer or not? I'm a follower, and I'm, I know I'm a believer, and I'm going to keep following Jesus. That's what they're doing by asking that question. Is it I, Lord? And he answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written. You see that text there? He's following scriptural you know, um, prophecy it, as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better. Here it is for that man. If he had not been born, listen to what Judas says, Judas, who would betray him answered, is it I rabbi? He said to him, you have said so. I don't know that this is particularly indicting, but it might be that the disciples said, is it I Lord? Is it I master? in a humble posture of submission. And Judas said, is it I, rabbi, which means teacher? Is it, is it me? Is it, am I going to be the one teacher who betrays you? Judas is already betraying Jesus. He is uh, in the process of looking for the opportunity to um, get Jesus exposed and incarcerated. It's probably false guilt or he's being duplicitous by saying, is it I, rabbi? It's got some guilt there. Let's go a little bit deeper into the 
discourse in the upper room, John 13, 18 to 30. He says, I am not speaking of all of you. I know of whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. Here it is, the graphe, the prophecy is going to be fulfilled. Why was he saying that? It says, he's quoting Psalm 41, 9 here in, in John 13, 18. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. He's bolstering the faith of the believers. He wants Peter, James, John, Andrew, and all the rest to see that this was all part of the plan. This is all part of God's sovereign will that this was going to take place. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. You receive God if you receive Jesus because Jesus is God. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of, the disciple, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved, this is John. He's the author of John. He's writing these. He's speaking of himself. Was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon motioned to him and asked Jesus of whom he was speaking. So the disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? So you have John who's laying across Jesus' chest. He's saying, is it I, Lord? And then you have Peter. He's going, who is it? Who is this one that's going to betray Jesus? So now their eyes are kind of focusing out amongst the table, the dinner table, who is it that's going to sell you out? We've questioned ourselves, and now we want to know. And Jesus tells them exactly who it is and symbolizes it by saying, look, it's he who shares the the dipping cup here with me and, and dips the bread with me. That's the one who's going to betray me. Look how obvious this is. Jesus answered, it is he whom I give this, this morsel of bread When I have dipped it, so when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Let me stop there for a second. Um, Who is Jesus addressing when he says, what you're going to do, do quickly? Satan's entered into Judas's heart. Is he talking to Satan or is he talking to Judas? This is my favorite thing to do in teaching theology in the Bible. Is it Satan or Judas he's talking to? The answer is yes, both. He's talking to both realms. He's talking to Judas and he's talking to the devil. And it's dynamic. The spiritual realm and the physical realm are happening at the same time. This is just like when Peter um, earlier had said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but the Spirit of God has. And then right in that moment, Peter turns the tables and says, Lord, but forbid it that you go to the cross. And Jesus goes, Get you behind me, Satan. Who is Jesus talking to? He's talking to Peter, but he's also saying, Devil, get away. He's resisting the devil and saying, I'm going to the cross. And in this case, he's addressing Judas Iscariot, but he's also addressing the devil's work in Judas's heart because he knows that this is all part of the plan that's playing out in front of him. So verse 28, now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Can you believe that? He just told Peter and John that I'm going to dip the morsel and give it to the one who's betraying me. And they're just baffled. A lot of times I think in our own lives, we get too close up with people where we can't see what they're doing anymore, right? 
were too close. You know, they loved Judas. Judas was one of them. They had sort of put their lives on the line together for three years, walking around in, in this army cohort, in this military plan. They had done all of these things together. And Judas was selling them out, and they would not let themselves believe it. That's how hardened our hearts can be. The disciples were being duped in this moment. Some thought, verse 29, that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what you need for the feast. Just go to the grocery store. He's just sending Judas out to cars because we've run out of food. Or that he should give something to the poor, which is ironic because Judas was robbing from the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night, which is all symbolism of symbolic of uh, Judas selling Jesus out, giving him over. Satan is very deceptive. Judas is the ultimate picture of uh, being someone that looks like a believer but isn't. Again, the scripture from the Old Testament that was being fulfilled in this moment is Psalm 41.9. You'll see that in the cross-reference of your Bibles. Psalm 41.9 says this, David said, Even my close friend in whom I've trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. This is what Jesus is seeing fulfilled. Judas, you were my close friend. We were friends. We're in the mission together. And you're selling me out. But it's all fulfilling the scripture. It's all fulfilling God's sovereign plan. There's always man's responsibility and God's sovereignty or God's sovereignty and man's responsibility happening at the same time. That's what Jesus is finding comfort in. But even though God is sovereign, let's not just chalk up, you know, um, Judas to say, well, that was just part of God's sovereign plan that has nothing to do with me at all. No, let's be warned. Don't be like Judas. Be like the 11. The 11 weren't perfect. They would get duped at times. They would get mixed up at times. They came from a checkered past. All those things are at play, but they're following the Lord Jesus, and Judas is selling the Lord Jesus out. He is going astray when the 11 are going forward. So here's the big question. Why did Jesus allow all this to happen? What good comes from Judas Iscariot? Couldn't he have done it another way? Why did Jesus select Judas? Well, this kind of question must be answered in the context of the large question of the Bible, which is why would God allow anything bad to happen? Why would God, who is holy and perfect, allow sin into the world at all? It's the problem of evil. It's theodicy in the scholarly language. Why, why did he do anything? Why did he allow for anything to happen that's bad in our world? Judas is a great human example of evil in our world. Why would he allow anything? Well, God has higher purposes than we know, right? God is bigger than us. God is the great parent who looks down upon we who are like toddler three-year-olds going, I want to play in the streets so badly. I want to run out into Lake Otis right now with my scooter. Why can't I do that? It'll be so much fun. And instead of explaining it to the child about what it looks like to get run over, Or to terrify people who are on the road, you just say, "Um, because I said so. And I'm taking your scooter. 
just because you had the idea, you know? I mean, that kind of thing. That's, God is like that to us. We are his children. What does the clay say back to the potter? Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Romans chapter 9, verse 20. God is sovereign. God is God, and we are not. He's got a bigger plan than we can fathom and fully understand and wrap our heads around. But we do understand some things from Scripture in terms of why he allows evil into the world all at the same time. We understand something about what God is doing. He allows evil in the world as a dark backdrop to everything that's good. We see what is true and righteous and pure and lovely and transcendent and glorious because we see what is wrong and dark and digressive and what kills and what destroys and what what horrors come from sin. We see heaven in contrast to hell. We see light in contrast to darkness. It's like if you have a diamond and you lay it on black felt, you see its brilliance um, under the lights that reflect from this beautiful diamond. And that's the gospel. We see light in in, in light of what is dark. So also, I want to point this out. Judas Iscariot makes sense of our lives at some degree. So... First of all, the secret things belong to the Lord. We fully can't understand why God allows evil into our world. Secondly, we understand that the light of the gospel and the truth shines brighter with the backdrop of the darkness of sin that's been allowed here. But thirdly, we can, experience, we can understand life a little bit better when we understand that God allows a Judas in every batch, right? There's always a little leaven that's leavening the whole lump. There's always one, right? in the family or in your work organization or in your Christian ministry, there's always somebody stirring up trouble. I'm not saying that that troublemaker is Judas Iscariot level, but we understand that there are wheat and tares, there are sheep and there are goats. There's just some reality um, given to us in the example of Judas. In other words, if Jesus had a Judas, then what would we expect otherwise for us, right? We're going to see people who apostatize. You're going to know somebody who knows Jesus, who's on fire for Jesus, who knows scripture, is it all memorized, who went to Christian school, went to Christian college, went into full-time ministry, and then makes shipwreck of their faith. And you say, there's no way. There's no way that person turned on the Lord. But you can have it all on the outside, and if the Lord hasn't changed you on the inside, then you have nothing at all, right? That's Judas Iscariot, and he gives us at least a template, an example, not only of who not to be, but as to what happens in our world around us. He's the ultimate example of someone who did not truly repent, He's the example of not godly sorrow from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, but worldly sorrow. You have Peter who repents after denying Christ three times, and you have Judas Iscariot who has a false guilt, who thinks he's right with God and ultimately is not, can't get over it, and does not truly repent. Thirdly or fourthly, we see this. We see Jesus' compassion. This story is a story of compassion. Did Jesus truly love Judas Iscariot? The answer is yes. Did Jesus know that Judas Iscariot was going to apostatize or walk away from the faith? Yes. Scripture said that he would. So certainly, because the Bible predicted it, Jesus knew it. But did Jesus treat and love Judas like everyone else? I believe, yes, Jesus washed Judas' feet. 
He taught and empowered him. Jesus is sovereign, but you have to remember this. Even though Jesus is 100% God, he's also 100% man, and that's a mystery. It's the mystery of the hypostatic union. How it all was together and how it all figures out is ultimately something that is not comprehensible to us. It's incomprehensible. We can't all the way put it together. How can Jesus not be playing a game here with Judas Iscariot, right? I know he's going to sell me out, and so I'm just playing the game and going through the motions. That's not how you read Christ. Christ is compassionate. He, he weeps when, uh, when Lazarus dies. Those are genuine tears. He's a genuine, sympathetic high priest with us today. He's living life with us today. And yet Jesus has the big picture all at the same time. How we harmonize that is just by faith we believe it. Jesus, um, it, it says in Philippians 2, he laid something aside when he took on humanity. And many Theologians will say he laid aside the independent exercise of all of his attributes when he took on human flesh, when he became in the form of a servant. He was living in each day. Hebrews says that he was learning through obedience as he grew. He was perfect, but he was learning. It's amazing. So he was living real time with Judas, loving Judas, having compassion on Judas, and yet all the while knowing it had been better had he not been born. And the scripture was being fulfilled, and he was going to deliver me over. Remember the passage I quoted earlier, Psalm 41.9, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. That's the heart of Jesus. Jesus loves you. Have you ever acted Judas-like? Have you ever for a season walked away from the Lord? Have you ever hardened your heart at the point where you go, I don't even know if I'm a Christian. Have you ever examined yourself and looked in the mirror spiritually and said, oh, I don't like what I see there. But then you come back to the Lord and you say, Lord, wash me, cleanse me, love me because you loved me all the way through. You never left me. You held me in your hands. That's the compassion of Christ. So let's take a commercial break for a minute, just for a moment, just so we can breathe, right? Whose names are on the 12 thrones in Revelation chapter 21? This is a question that has been asked um, this week of me. Um, In Matthew 19, 28, we'll start there. It says, Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you in the new world, meaning heaven, when the son of man will be, will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So who's he talking to? He's talking to the 12 apostles, but I, there's a little caveat in that verse that I want you to see. He says, you who have followed me. The ones who are true followers are the ones who are going to sit on the 12 thrones. So who is it? Revelation 21, 14, and the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the lamb. So who are the 12 apostles? Here it is, of the lamb. Well, for sure the 11, but one is replaced in Acts chapter one and that is Matthias. I think the 12th in heaven is Matthias. That's what I would understand because Judas isn't going to sit on that throne. Someone said after first hour, you know, Judas is still alive. He's just burning in hell. That was after I had preached this and I'm sitting there in my own heart going, oh, that's so hard to think about. Eternal hell, eternal punishment. 
Hell is real. Judas Iscariot is the personification of someone in hell. This is why we share Christ. This is why we brave the message. This is why we speak the truth. This is why we text it out. I'm gonna, I blogged on that this week. We text out encouragement, text out truth, text out verses, tell people about Jesus. Live for Jesus. Guard your own heart. Examine your own heart. Here's the point of the sermon. We should say it out loud. Don't be Judas. Don't be Judas. Be the 11. Don't be the 12th. That's the point. What happened to Judas Iscariot? Well, I have to answer this question too. What about the Apostle Paul? Well, he's the apostle to the Gentiles. He saw the risen Lord. That qualified him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. 2 Corinthians is his autobiographical defense of his apostleship. But it was unique from the 12 in that he was the apostle of the Gentiles. And scripture doesn't care to, to give any more explanation than that. But he never forgot where he came from. All right. What happened to Judas at the end? Um, just I scratched down some notes um, this morning on that. Um, if you look over at Matthew 27, I just want you to see this. The morning came. The chief priest, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. Jesus had been betrayed. He had been on trial. He had been scourged. And it says, um, they bound him and they led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. And then look at verse 3. And when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. Now, is this spiritual repentance? The changing of the mind. It is for a believer. This looks like repentance. And what did Judas do? He, he practiced. Um, he, he did an act of what looked like repentance. He brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. Here's a public confession. Here's full ownership of what he had done. This is a real bugaboo. Is he repenting here? What's happening? And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. This is the ultimate condemnation. The chief priests, the religious people, the ones who are faking it at the highest level. They're complete, total hypocrites. They've done the mock trial. They've condemned the Lord Jesus. They've gone under the blind stupor of their own religion. They're rejecting Jesus Christ. Judas is coming back and and saying, I want to throw my... My silver back at you. I don't want this. I've seen the light. Jesus was innocent all along. He's, Judas is bound up in what's called false guilt. He wants to do something to get himself right. And then he's rejected. See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priest taking the pieces of silver said, it's not lawful to put them in the treasury. They didn't want to touch the money since it is blood money. It was dirty to them. They knew it was a scandal. They took counsel and brought, bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. What was called the field of blood. And it was all predicted by Jeremiah. Finally, turn over to Acts chapter 1. Look at verse 15. This ends the story. And in those days, Peter stood up. Now, Peter, remember Jesus in the upper room. He said, scripture will be fulfilled. This is all Psalm 41. This is happening for a reason. Well, it clicked in Peter's mind. And those days, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of the persons was in all about 120. This is the upper room and said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled. There it is. It had to happen this way, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. That's Psalm 40 or Psalm uh, 41, 9. 
concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. And he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. I mean, look, that's what he was about. He was numbered in the 12. He was part of the ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. This is the field of blood. He must have hanged himself. The branch must have broken. And then he falls to his complete, like, gushing out just in a grotesque way. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. Sobering. Sobering to think about. But hopefully, this is not just nutritious food, but this is also comforting food. Because we know Jesus. We know we're kept in the Father's hands. We know we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. We know the Holy Spirit dwells within us. We know that as we examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith, we can say, yes, I love the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that no sin that we do can separate us from the love of God. We say, Lord, we know that your blood has covered all of our sins. And instead of straying away from you, we are going to move towards you now. And just as Peter was restored after denying Christ three times at the apex crisis moment of the Lord Jesus going to the cross, Peter was restored. And Peter stood as one of the 12 saying, we need to choose another. Peter was saved. Peter was true in his repentance compared to Judas who had a worldly sorrow and a false repentance. The difference on the surface, they look the same. The difference is the difference between a changed heart or not.